This is now the fourth Sunday in 2023, which means that we're about at the point in time in which we will stop putting 2022 down whenever we have to write the date. It's always uh, interesting as the year changes, a reminder that time keeps going on. And time is an interesting thing. Sometimes time is an experience. You can have the best of times, the worst of times. I joke with one of my brothers that anytime I get together with him, he tries to show me a good time, have a good experience. Sometimes time is a measurement, trying to beat your best time in, in a race or competition, having to finish your test in an allotted period of time, or trying to figure out how much time you have to bake the cookies, or how much time you have to wait after you eat the cookies before you can swim again. And so it's a time of measurement. Sometimes we talk about time as if it was a living thing. It can drag along, it can fly. But perhaps most often, as we think about time, it's a commodity or a resource. We talk about gaining time or losing time. We talk about finding time as if it was in a box in the garage we forgot about or uh, fell in the couch cushions while we were sitting there. And, oh, there was some time. I found it. We talk about wasting time or saving time. We talk about spending time. But as we think about time as a resource, what is very clear is it is a limited resource and a very precious resource because it passes by very quickly. As the philosopher Theodore Geisel once remarked, how did it get so late so soon? It's night before it's afternoon. December is here before it's June. My goodness, how the time has flown. How did it get so late so soon? Now, you might know Theodore by his name, Dr. Seuss. But the movement of time does continue on, and it moves fast. And even if we don't want it to, the reality is we cannot opt out of Time. Benjamin Franklin said, you may delay, but time will not. And it often feels as though time is controlling us or mastering us. We are in the box of time. And the box is slowly shrinking, closing in on us. And we're unable to break out of the box, so we simply wait until the box eventually closes and our time is up. But is that our fate? If you would open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 33. Deuteronomy chapter 23. We're going to start in verse 26. Deuteronomy 33, we find the final blessing of Moses for the people of Israel. They have gathered, ready to enter into Canaan, into the promised land, and yet Moses will not be going with them. And so he gives them this final blessing. And he goes through several of the tribes and and gives his prayer of what he wants the Lord to do and what I believe he expects the Lord to do for them. At the very end... In verses 26 to 29, he gives a general blessing and prayer for the nation of Israel as they are getting ready without their leader to go into Canaan to to conquer the land. And that's partly why when you read through chapter 23, you see a lot of emphasis on military because they're preparing to go fight. 
to drive out the people that are in the land so they can secure the land for themselves. And as Moses gives this final prayer, really much of what he does is remind them of the God that they serve. And as he describes this God, we find that in this God, there is an answer in our struggle with time. He would look at chapter 20, uh, verse 26 of Deuteronomy 33. There is none like the God of Jeshurun, who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. There is none like this God. No one else is like him. They're getting ready to go into a land in which there are gods that they serve there. And yet, Moses is reminding them, they may claim to be God, but they are no match for the true God. There is no one else like this God. Now, what is Jeshurun? Well, it's basically a, a pet name for Israel. It's a term of affection for the people, a reminder that they are God's special possession. And he is their God. And there is no one else like him because he is majestic. Look at how he's described. He's riding the heavens and he's riding through the skies in his majesty. I've always thought riding a horse looks cool. I mean, you just look really powerful as you're coming in on a horse. In part because a horse is a majestic creature. But that's nothing compared to riding the skies. Riding through the heavens. And yet, why is God doing this? Why is he riding through the skies? Look at verse 26. To your help. He is coming in his majesty, in his glory, for the aid of his people. And this God is a warrior. Verse 27, the eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he drove out the enemy from before you and then said, destroy. We'll come back in a little bit to to talk about underneath are the everlasting arms. And and yet it's very clear, even as God is holding his people, in a sense with his other arm, he is driving out his enemies away from them. The same arm that's protecting his people is a fearful arm for those who are his enemies. This is a father holding his child as, as maybe a dog comes up to attack or probably even more fitting, a bee. Nothing that frightening. Certainly could hurt the child, but it's nothing. Father can easily swat it away. And he's driving out the enemies and he calls his people to this task. Remember, they're getting ready to go into the, the, the promised land. And what has God told them? Destroy the people. And we don't have a lot of time to to try to to think through the ramifications of this. I'll simply just remind us at this point in time that the people in the land were some of the most wicked people who ever lived in this world. The atrocities they committed were horrific. And God actually had given them over 400 years now to repent. And yet they had not repented. They continued in their sin. And so now their judgment had come. And God was going to use the nation of Israel to destroy this people and drive them out from the land. And who is this God? This God in verse 27 is the eternal God who has everlasting arms. What does it mean to say that God is the eternal God? 
was something that's emphasized quite a bit in Scripture. Just listen to a few passages here. Romans 1 and verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. That all people know just from the fact that God made this world and they are in his image, that he is the eternal God with eternal power. Isaiah 57, 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I love that phrase. He inhabits eternity. He doesn't just visit. He doesn't just have a room. This is his domain. He inhabits eternity. It is his Habakkuk 1.12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? And so what does it mean to say that God is eternal? Well, certainly it means that he has no beginning. That he has endless existence in the past. Psalm 93.2, your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Or Jesus, in John seventeen five says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And just as God had no beginning, he will have no end. He will exist forever into the future. Luke one thirty three. Speaking of Jesus, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Psalm 48, 14, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. But I think the fact that God is eternal goes beyond the fact that he didn't have a beginning and doesn't have an end. That God exists eternally. And what that means is he exists outside of time. He transcends and stands above time. Job 36, 26. Behold, God is great and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. Daniel 4, 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, it's God. And what's the beginning there? It is the beginning of the world, but it's also the beginning of time itself. When time starts, God's already there. And Jesus was there. As John 1 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. He is the eternal God. Which means when we ask the question, how long did God wait to create the world? The answer is, that's a ridiculous question. Because there was no time before he created the world. If we're asking how long something is, we're saying, what's the measure of time? And before the world began, there isn't one. God did not exist in time until he made time when he made the world. Now, if you're like me, 
That's really hard to get your mind around. Because I've never experienced anything outside of time. Everything I've ever done has been in time. Even saying before the world began is a time statement. But it's the best we can do. Because it's hard for us to fully grasp this reality. And yet, I think there are some ways in which we can try to understand what this means. That our God, the eternal God, exists outside of time. That he made time. What does it mean? Well, first of all, it's a reminder to us that no one else is like God. He's not like us. He's not like any other created thing because he's not created. Everything else exists in time. Satan, bound by time. All the angels and demons, bound by time. We, bound by time. God, unbound. Outside of time. Which means that he is able to know all things perfectly at all times. Isaiah 46 Verses 9 and 10 says this, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been. And why is God able to do this? In part, he's able to do this because he's able to see it all right now. He's able to see all of time in one instance. And so he does not have to get to this point in time to find out what's going to happen. We're right now bound in time. And as we look forward, we don't know what's there. Because we're in the middle of walking along it. One of the best ways I've heard this illustrated is as if we're in a parade. And we're walking along in the parade. And what do we see? Well, we see everything around us right now. And even if we were an observer on the parade, what would we see? The part of the parade that's right before us. And yet God is up in the sky. And he's able to see the entire parade at one time. But it's important to understand, it doesn't mean that he doesn't know what's happening in time. Because as he sees the entire parade, what else is he able to see? Well, that's here, right here. And that's here, right here. And so even as God exists outside of time, and God is able to see everything at once, he is also able to know exactly what is happening in time. He can interact in time. He can work in time. He understands time even as he exists outside of it. For us, as we stand right now in the present, and we look back, over time what tends to happen? Our memories fade. They can't remember things that used to happen. As we look in the forward, what do we know? Not much. It's unknown. But that's never true for God. He cannot forget what has happened in the past. And he cannot be unsure of what happens in the future because he's not in time. He stands above it and sees it all. And so therefore he knows all. And God never ages. Mention we're in a new year. That also means you're probably going to have another birthday sometime in this year. And we've tried to tell our boys it's not polite to ask ladies how old they are. But even for men, eventually there comes a point in time you don't really want to tell how old you are. If you say, well, how old is God? 
The answer is, that's not even a relevant question. Because God doesn't have an age. He's the ancient of days, not because he himself is ancient, but because that's the best way we can understand who he is. He does not get older. We, year by year, change and grow. But God never changes, grows, or develops. Think about yourself. You can look back and say, now when I was young, this is what I was like, and this is the things I enjoyed doing. And some of you maybe even keep a journal. Maybe you do this with your kids. You know, what was your favorite color, your favorite food at this time? And over time, that changes. Your tastes, your desires change. What you want to do changes. Perhaps one of the the clearest examples of this is bedtime for parents. Because what happens at bedtime? The people who desperately want to go to bed are trying to force people to bed who desperately don't want to go to bed. Because when you're a kid, what do you want? To stay up. When you're not, what do you want? To go to sleep. But God does not have that experience. His desires have not shifted over time because time has had no bearing on him. He stands outside of it and above it. Which means, unlike us, God does not serve time. Time serves him. Psalm 94, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. 2 Peter 3, 8, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Think about for us how we experience time. Sometimes it seems to go so slowly. Other times it goes so fast. There are times in which we wish we had more time to accomplish something. You're running up against a deadline with a project you've got to finish. You think, I just wish I had another day or another week so I could get it done. Or you're running late for an appointment. And so I wish somehow I had more time to get there. Or perhaps as your children are getting ready to get out of your home, you think, I just wish I had a few more years with them. I wish I had more time. At other times, we wish we could fast forward life. Waiting in traffic. Sitting in a boring meeting or a boring class. Maybe a boring sermon. And thinking, I just kind of wish we could move along and get to the end of this. We're counting down the days until spring break or until graduation or until the time when you're going to get married or when you want to finally have the baby and no longer be pregnant. You just wish I could move time along a little bit more quickly. Other times we wish, man, I wish I could go back in time to experience the things that I had back then. I didn't understand what I had then. Or how often do we think, I just wish I could freeze time right now. But we can't. Because we cannot control time. Time limits us. Time never limits God. He always has enough time to accomplish all of his purposes. We watch movies or shows and and. It's actually almost like a trick where people will put in some kind of time to make it a little bit more dramatic. There's there's now a clock, and the clock is ticking away, and we wonder, is it going to be accomplished in time? 
And there's the pressure. Will they get it done? And God never experiences that. There's never a pressure for him to say, will he get it done in time? Because he's not controlled by time. He never has too much or too little of time. He is the only true Lord of time. There's a popular show that has someone who's called the Time Lord because this person can travel within time. But you know who's really the Time Lord? The one who made it and actually controls it. Not just someone who can move within time. Someone who can move outside of time. He is the true Lord of time, which means when he acts, it's exactly when he needs to act. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. God is the Lord of time. And Moses tells us that this God, this eternal God, is our dwelling place. He's our refuge. In him, we can find safety and security. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Isaiah 40, 11, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arms. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. I remember when one of my sons was very young, he was afraid of of getting in the pool. And so what would I do? I'd go in and I'd hold him. And as I was holding him, what was he doing? He was clinging desperately to me. Because he was afraid of falling in the water. But what if his finger slipped? He'd be okay. Why? He was in my arms. But my arms are nothing. As we face the situations in life and we're afraid, will we fall underneath our God's everlasting arms? And so what does that mean for his people? That no one is as blessed as those who rest in this God. There's no one like this God. And Moses says, there's no one like this God's people. Because they get this God. Look what he says in the rest of this passage. Verses 28 and 29. So Israel dwells in security, the fountain of Jacob secluded in a land of grain and new wine. His heavens also drop down dew. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. So your enemies will cringe before you and you will tread upon their high places. So Israel dwells in security. Why? Because the eternal God is their dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. What could possibly harm you? What better security could you ever want? You are dwelling 
in the eternal God with his everlasting arms underneath you, holding you. And so you will dwell in safety and security. But notice, what is Israel about to do? Are they going into a land of peace? No. They're going into war. They're going into battle. Where will they possibly be safe and secure? Now remember the, 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 the history of Israel. They're here now because they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Not because it took them 40 years to get from Egypt to the promised land. They got to the promised land and what happened? The people went over and they came back and said, we don't want to fight these people. Our security will be to stay over here. And as they look at the land right now, that hasn't changed. Look at the people. The people were still terrifying. And they, the people of Israel could easily have looked at the people in the land and said, our security will be to dwell right where we are. And yet God is reminding them, no, no, no. Your security will be to dwell where I tell you to dwell. To do what I tell you to do. And what I tell you to do, from a human perspective, might mean conflict. Might mean trouble. But only then will you truly be safe. Only then will you truly be secure. Because you'll be in my everlasting arms. The fountain of Jacob, secluded. It's hard to know exactly what that phrase means. I think the best way to understand the fountain of Jacob is is the offspring from Jacob. The generations to come. Israelites who will continue to dwell in this land, they will do so secluded, isolated from outside threats. Dwelling peacefully in the land because they have driven out their enemies. And this is a land that's often described as a land of plenty, a land of grain and new wine with plenty of moisture, plenty of water, because the heavens drop down dew. And so, blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. That no one is like Israel, because Israel is great? No. God's already told them, it's not you. There's no one like you because there's no one like me. There's nothing special in you. And I say this to Center City. I know we're not Israel, but I think it's still true. There is nothing special about us. There is something incredibly special about our God. And because we are his people, there is now no one else like us on this world. No one else can compare to us because no one can compare to our God because we are a people saved by the Lord. It's not our might. It's not our power. How did Israel get to this point? They were in slavery in Egypt. And how did they get out? Because they were a powerful, mighty nation. No. How did they get out? Because God showed his power. He sent plagues So the the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, was so terrified of this God, he actually willingly gave up his wealth to the people of Israel and sent them out. These were not a people who saved themselves. These were people saved by the Lord. And he's saying, 
Just like I was with you there, I will be with you in this land. Because this God is described in verse 29 as their shield and as their sword. Where is their confidence? Where is their trust? In their own might, in their own power, in their own weapons? No. In their God, who is their shield and is their sword. And what will be the result if they trust in this God? Your enemies will cringe before you and you will tread upon their high places. I think their high places is probably better actually translated uh, on their backs. The image is, is a people who's completely and utterly defeated. They're cringing before you. You have their foot, your foot on their back because they have fallen. They have no chance before this God. So if I could encourage us in thinking in light of the fact that this eternal God that was the God of Israel is now the God of the church. What does that mean? Well, first, I think there is an important reminder. This passage doesn't itself highlight this, but certainly within the broader context, there is a reminder this God, as a holy God, is a God who will judge sin. And as the eternal God, he is the God who will judge sin eternally. That we sin against the God who will exist for all eternity and thus can punish us for all eternity. And I think it's probably fair to say that some of the horrors of hell are actually related to the fact that we are in time. Talked earlier about times in which we want to fast forward time. When is that? When we're miserable. When we are in pain and we are suffering, it feels as if time crawls along. And I'm certain that will be the experience of those who are in hell. Time will constantly drag along, and yet there's no thought that in the future, perhaps, at a later time, things will be better. It will only remain evil and painful and suffering because they will be apart from God. They will be facing his judgment for all eternity. And so in light of that, I think it is wise for us to recognize We are bound by time in this life. And so as Moses said in Psalm 90, 12, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. We are not outside of time. We are bound in time. And God has given us the time that he has given us. And so we are to use it wisely. We need to ask God to help us to utilize the time he has given us. And yet... Our hope is not in our ability to use our time well. Because we cannot save ourselves. Our only hope is the fact that the eternal God entered time to redeem us. But the Son of God, 
As one commentator said, in need of nothing, knowing all things, possessing all things, entered time so that we might have eternal life. That he willingly subjected himself to all the realities of time in order to give us the gift of eternal life. Now the nation of Israel had an incredible promise. The eternal God was their dwelling place. Underneath were the everlasting arms. They could rest securely in him. And what did they do? They did not rest in this God. They did not trust in him to drive out all of their enemies. They did not dwell securely in this land. In a sense today, God is saying to you, I, the eternal God, can be your dwelling place. I've made it possible. Even though you in yourself could not save yourself, I sent my son so that he could redeem you. Will you embrace him? Will you trust in him? Will you turn from your sin so that you can find eternal life through Christ? And this God, the eternal God, the scripture tells us that he can take the temporal sufferings of this world and use them to produce eternal good. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outward person is decaying, yet our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. And through Jesus Christ, we can find that longing for eternity that we have. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity into man's heart. Even though we are in time and we feel as if it's pressing in on us. And to that point in time in which our time is up, there's something that says it shouldn't be this way. We were not made to die. We were made to live forever, and yet our sin has corrupted us and this world so that we will die. And yet, through Christ, we can find that eternal life. Second Timothy 1 9 and 10 says this, that Jesus saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so now, we can rest in God. We can rest from our hurried, time-bound existence in an unbounded God. A.W. Tozer says this, 
How completely satisfying to turn from our limitations to a God who has none. Eternal years lie in his heart. For him, time does not pass. It remains. And those who are in Christ share with him all the riches of limitless time and endless years. God never hurries. There are no deadlines against which he must work. Only to know this is to quiet our spirits and relax our nerves. For those out of Christ, time is a devouring beast. But before the sons of the new creation, time crouches and purrs and licks their hands. That we can share in Christ's eternal life. You know, I saw this week something that caught my eye in part because I was obviously thinking about this. Uh, Someone on, on Twitter said, I hate that every awesome thing comes to an end. I wish it would last forever. And you might know the name Elon Musk, one of the richest men in the world who now owns Twitter. He replied this, two of the worst possible curses. You will live forever. You can have anything you want. Are those curses? I think they could be. In hell, those are curses. In hell, you will live forever. And you'll have everything you want. But you shouldn't have wanted those things. In heaven, those are only blessings. You have everything you want. Because everything you want is found in Christ. And I think it's right. It is frustrating, like that guy says. I hate that all these good things come to an end. Thinking about Bilbo Baggins in the story, The Fellowship of the Ring, he says, I think I found an ending for my book, The Hobbit. What does he say? Well, he lived happily ever after to the end of his days. Is that a good ending? I mean, that's, that's good, but he still dies, right? And that's how stories tend to end. It's really good, but you know at some point in time, it's going to end. And what do we really want? To live happily ever after. No ending. And we can find that in Christ. Because Christ, through Christ, the eternal God can be our dwelling place. We want to say to those who love us, I'll always be there for you. But we cannot say that. God can. He will be our eternal dwelling place, our forever home. Underneath are his everlasting arms. And I couldn't help but think about Moses in this situation. Because Moses is the one who's, who's writing these words. And you know what else Moses wrote? Moses wrote Psalm 90. And in Psalm 90, what does he say? Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And here, God is our eternal dwelling place. I had to think, why did that matter so much to Moses? Well, think about Moses' life. 
He's taken from his family as an infant. He's raised among a people that is not his people. And then what happens? He lives out in the wilderness for 40 years. He comes back to take his people to the land that God has promised them. And they get there. And what happens? They don't get to enter. And so they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. And you get to that time. And Moses never gets to go to that land. Because of his sin, he was not allowed to enter the land. He did not trust God. And what did Moses really want? An eternal dwelling place. Because he lived as a stranger in this world. As all of God's people truly live. We're strangers. We're pilgrims. This is not and cannot be our home. And so we are constantly having the the good things of this world, the joys end. But one day, our joy will never end. Because the eternal God is our dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Don't treasure that which is passing away. Don't cling to the things that are seen and temporal. Rest in the everlasting arms of your eternal warrior God.